in recent days, news came out that China has fully militarized three islands it built in the disputed South China Sea. What is the significance of this? Why is the Western Pacific vital to American interests? What is concerning in the current relationship between the United States and some Asia-Pacific countries? And what is the missing puzzle from the United States' Asia-Pacific strategy? Today we sit down with Grant Newshams, a senior fellow with the Center for Security Policy and director at One Korea Network and the Yorktown Institute to talk about these questions. In tomorrow's episode, we'll release the second part of the interview, where we zoom in on Taiwan and talk about the ways it could improve its defense against potential aggression from China and how we can work better with the United States in doing so. Colonel Newsham, wonderful to have you on the show today. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. So as the Ukraine war drags on, it seems like the Chinese Communist Party is getting busier in the Western Pacific. Uh, news came out a few days ago from a U.S. admiral that the CCP has fully militarized the islets in the South China Sea, uh, three of them in, in triangular position, and they've signed a security deal with the Solomon Islands. Um, zooming in on the militarized islets, what is the significance of this? Well, it's important from in a couple military respects, and that is that it allows the, the Chinese to really anytime they want to cut the sea lanes in the South China Sea. Uh, keep in mind that about 80% of Japan's oil goes through the South China Sea, same for South Korea, and a huge amount of their international trade. Uh, so that you can see the importance of that. But also by setting up these militarized islands, which are in fact, these are full-scale military bases in the middle of the South China Sea, China has expanded its ability to conduct military operations about 1,500 miles farther farther offshore from China. So now China can reach down to Australia, well into the Southwest Pacific uh, and off to the, into the, the Central Pacific. And from these bases, it can you know, cause the Americans and America's friends all sorts of problems. Uh, they say these are full-scale bases, you know, to give you some sense of the size. Uh, one of them is about, the, the total size is about the same as the uh, District of Columbia, Washington, DC, which is pretty big. Another one is about as big as Pearl Harbor, the main U.S. base in Hawaii. Uh, these have everything that you've got, 10,000, everything you need, 10,000 foot runways, uh, all the maintenance capabilities. They've got anti-ship missiles, anti-aircraft systems. Uh, they can launch fighters from there, electronic warfare aircraft. They say it allows China to operate from much farther offshore than it ever has and to start operating into the sort of farther into the Pacific region. But there's something else about this that's interesting, as I think, and it uh, shows one of the fundamental weaknesses in U.S. policy over the years, and that, that is that the Chinese started militarizing or building these bases in 2014. It was completely obvious what they were going to do. Uh, and this despite you know, Xi Jinping having promised President Obama they would not militarize them. You knew that was a lie, and anyone, you know, with... Uh, should have known. Uh, but this is to say, it's not a surprise what's happened. And now we're acting like it is. But you will notice that, that throughout this period, there were people who were saying, look, the Chinese are going to militarize these. They are going to establish the ability to take control of the South China Sea, which is an area of international waters, about this, uh, one and a half times as big as the Mediterranean Ocean, China has just said it's there, so they're going to take it. We need to do something about it. Well, we did nothing. 
would we have gone into the South China Sea and say destroyed the Chinese construction operations? No. But what you could have done is you could have applied pressure indirectly. For example, uh, suspend the People's Bank of China's license to operate in the United States uh, for six months. Uh, maybe expose the uh, overseas real estate holdings and financial holdings of, uh, say, the top 50 Chinese Communist Party leaders, put it on the front page of the, the New York Times, and even get it into China via the Great Fire, get it around the Great Firewall. Uh, so there are ways you could have applied pressure on China, but instead we, the Americans, the Defense Department, uh, successive administrations, they really didn't do much to uh, give the Chinese reason to pause. And here we are now, uh, they have got this presence. Um, I've heard some, I've heard it said that some senior American officers said, well, if there's a war, we can destroy those in a day, two days or so. Well, you're not going to have a war if the Chinese do it right. By setting up this posi these positions in the South China Sea, they've put in place a fait accompli, that they have had these bases. And if anyone touches them, well, it's World War III. So you can bet, you can bet that we're probably not going to touch them. And once again, think of the message here that other countries uh, take from all of this. They say, well, the Chinese built these bases in the middle of international waters that other countries in the region uh, claim or you know, have an interest in. The Americans could not stop them. The Americans would not stop them. What does that do for American credibility? Uh, it's not a good thing. And this is what comes of ignoring uh, hard problems that come, come our way. So that's how, when I look at the South China Sea uh, islands, that's uh, the thing that I look at is really squandered opportunity to do something about it. And now it makes all our problems uh, much worse. Yeah, there are a few thematic things that I want to get to uh, for the rest of the interview. Um, but before we start, I want to give a little bit of a backdrop for, backdrop for our audience. And I was hoping to get your perspective of the why. And so tell us if and why American military presence in the South China Sea and the Western Pacific is vital to American interests. The Chinese objective is to drive the Americans out of Asia, out of the Pacific, and for China to dominate and control the region. Uh, it is that simple. It's hard to believe that the Americans could ever be driven out of anywhere uh, or that somebody would want to do it. But that is, in fact, the Chinese objective is to drive America out of the Pacific. Now, why does that matter, say, to the average American? Uh, you, you'll often hear the explanations, and they're good ones, is that uh, America's prosperity, a lot of our economic uh, bounty and the, sort of the good life we enjoy does depend on our business dealings, our business activities in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, so that's important, of course. In fact, it's essential to try doing without it. Uh, but I found that there's a another way to, to look at this that, you know, when trying to explain it as to how, why it matters. And I find that if you start with the a recognition of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese regime, that's important because this is not just another government, another country. Uh, this is a, a ruthless, brutal, aggressive, totalitarian dictatorship. Uh, it is just an awful regime of the sorts we've seen throughout history. Uh, and that's the thing you have to start with. Uh, it's a regime that doesn't dare have elections. Uh, if you say anything to criticize the, the, the leadership, none of whom are elected, uh, that you'll find yourself in short order in a prison 
a mental home, and even worse, you could find yourself dead. Uh, also, it's a regime that tolerates organ harvesting, which means uh, taking, uh, killing people to take their organs and sometimes taking from the, the organs from them while they are still alive. Uh, you can go down the list. Uh, the Chinese regime has been found guilty of genocide in dealing with uh, its Muslim populations in the, in, out west, the Uyghurs. Uh, so it's the nature of the regime that matters. You always have to keep that in mind. And then if you think about it, you know, think about where you live. Suppose that you know, in, in your neighborhood or say that the neighborhoods around you, that would it matter if the mafia ran those places? I would suggest it does. And I think we would find the mafia encroaching on our daily lives. It would be telling us what to do or else. Uh, be causing all sorts of problems. This would be a very different environment that you're living in. And the same thing applies in the, to the question of Chinese domination or control of the Asia Pacific. You have a ruthless regime that is in charge. So you will find that America's business interests are getting controlled, uh, that uh, America is being told by the Chinese, you've got to do certain things or we're not going to send you resources that you need. We're not going to send you these supplies on which your economy depends. Uh, and, and you're going to find that all your friends in the region are suddenly under Chinese communist domination as well. And that's never a good thing. So what you're going to find if the Chinese are successful in ultimately driving America out of the region is that America is going to be uh, completely discredited in the world. Uh, people will say, well, the US military couldn't prevent this. America's economic and financial strength couldn't prevent this. American nuclear weapons couldn't prevent this. So why should we care about the United States? Why should we rely on that? So that's actually one way that I would suggest looking at this, that remember what kind of regime the Chinese Communist Party is. And it is akin to the mafia. And then it put it onto your personal level. As I said, would you mind if the mafia took over all the neighborhoods around you and then started to come into your neighborhood? I would suggest that you would. So I guess the premise or the justification is that there's this predatory power that's constantly looking uh, to to expand its influence, uh, you know, on the world and in a very vicious uh, sort of aggressive way. And to that note, to deal with or I guess to you know strategize against that, in early February, the U.S. has issued its Indo-Pacific strategy. However, China and Russia have formed a closer alliance after the you know, Ukraine-Russian war, which was the wild card that came into play after the strategy was issued. So in the very big picture, do you see a need for the United States to reevaluate this Indo-Pacific strategy after what transpired in the past few weeks? Uh, and if so, how should the U.S. adjust? Well, countries like the U.S., when we have a strategy, you always have to monitor it and see if it's still appropriate. I think, by and large, that the American Indo-Pacific strategy is a good one. I think the Biden administration has actually been kind of smart, and they've kept most of what the Trump administration had as an Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, but it needs to always combine both the military part of it, the economic part, the diplomatic uh, efforts. And the Americans don't always do that uh, very well. We tend to focus often on the military and say, well, we have to have a big, powerful military in the region, which is true. If you don't have it, you cannot succeed and nobody will take you seriously, neither your enemies nor your friends. 
So that is important, but we have a trouble melding the economic ends, the diplomatic ends, and we do a terrible job on communications. It used to be called propaganda, which really just means explaining yourself. We're just horrible at that. So those are some places where you know, attention needs to be, be paid. Uh, the nature of the this Chinese-Russian agreement, uh, or whatever it is, it's that that is it, worrisome. Uh, it's not that the Russians and the Chinese have any great love for each other, but the temporary sort of marriage of convenience or alliance of convenience can cause immense trouble. And it does look as if each side had, the Russians and the Chinese had agreed to uh, sort of support each other as they went about their business. In Russia's case, it was to go after Ukraine. Uh, and the idea was that the Russians would return the favor when and if uh, the Chinese go after Taiwan. Uh, but there's some fundamental differences between the Chinese and the Russians, uh, which may put a limit on how far they can cooperate. But nonetheless, uh, this marriage of convenience is something very troubling, and it simply highlights the importance of the Americans getting their Asia-Pacific effort uh, in order. Uh, and to date, it you know, it's laid out pretty well, but as a practical matter, the impl uh, implementation uh, has not been uh, nearly as good as it, as it should be. Uh, additionally, there's, uh, we have a lot of friends and partners in the region and people who would like to work with us, but when they see that the Americans are kind of sometimes confused and don't seem to quite know what they're doing, that it causes people to stand back a bit uh, and you know, hope that America, as I said, gets its act together. Uh, just speaking a bit about the military end of it, uh, that the U.S. has been talking about this pivot to the Pacific for an awfully long time, uh, but it really hasn't resulted in a sort of really very um, very great increases in uh, the resources that, that we have out here, particularly from the naval end and air forces as well. Uh, so there's a lot of talk about it, but there really hasn't been the, the corresponding uh, results that, that one would think, particularly when you look at Navy ship numbers. Uh, the Chinese Navy is now bigger than the U.S. Navy by far, and they don't have to cover the whole world. So that's just one area. Uh, the Americans do need to do a better job of bringing their partners together so that they can operate in a, a really effective way. Uh, to date, it's uh, to some degree they can operate together, but there's never been a sense until recently that we just might have to fight uh, together against uh, against the Ch against China, and it's a little late in the day to get started on that. But there's uh, we see what the problem is, and there's uh, certainly work to be done there. Uh, so really, a coordinated effort effort that uh, say uh, joins together those parts that I mentioned: the military, economic, uh, propaganda, uh, or communications, um, and the diplomatic, that that's really is essential. And if you get that right, you're going to find your friends want to join in. It's going to make the partnerships that we have out here uh, much more effective. Right. And, you know, I, I really want to go into your point of um, that the, US, the United States has been offering some degree of military support to countries in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, but yet these countries, they maintain a very high degree of well, they have been increasing in their in economic dependency uh, with China. Uh, you know, and some may say that even ideologically, they're starting to align uh, with the Communist Party, or, you know, even though not completely, but 
you know, there may be a, so to say, a diverting trend, you know, away from the United States. So do you see this as concerning? And if so, do you think the United States should do something about this almost uh, decoupling of the economic and uh, sort of military spheres of influence that United States have over these countries? Well, that's a, a huge problem. What you've just described, it is that most of the countries in Asia, they have substantial economic dealings with China. Uh, and people like to do business. They like to make money. So you get kind of hooked on that. At the same time, most places, there isn't a great love for China. There's suspicion of it. So they like to have the Americans around providing uh, the security support, providing defense. Um, so they're effectively trying to have it both ways, sort of doing business with China, but saying to the Americans, well, you guys will protect us from these people, won't you? At some point, uh, most countries can, you're going to have to come down on one side of the fence or the other. And that is a, it's a decision that has been put off for much too long. The Americans haven't really done much uh, to help people make that decision. Uh, but say that's the dilemma, is how long can you straddle, can you stand on top of the fence? I would suggest not forever. Uh, what you're going to find if you're one of these countries that thinks it can sort of play off both sides, make money from China and have the Americans defend you for free, uh, that's not going to work uh, forever. And what you're going to find, particularly if the Americans are pushed out of the region uh, or sort of humiliated by the Chinese, that you're going to find the Chinese then saying, well, guess what? You're going to do business with us and we're going to provide the security. We'll make all those choices for you. So the countries that think they're being pretty smart, too clever by half uh, to play off the Chinese and the Americans, they may find themselves not having much of a choice. In fact, having no choice at all where the Chinese are the ones who are calling the shots. But what the Americans have to do, and it's something that really undercuts their efforts out here, is they have got to sort of wean themselves quickly off of the Chinese, off of Chinese money, off of Chinese business. Over the last 30 years, America's business class, financial class, and even much of its political class uh, has gotten itself hooked on Chinese money. Uh, the idea that you, if you do business in China you, and overlook all of these human rights problems of violations and just atrocities and overlook the fact that China wants to uh, drive America out of the Asia Pacific, uh, wants to really destroy American business. If you overlook all that, the idea is, well, we can make some money from China. And you can see the problem. How do you defend yourself when you've got you know, your snout in the trough of Chinese money? And how do you tell uh, countries in the region, look, be our friends, just uh, don't, get, don't listen to China, don't get too close to China. Well, we have made that uh, Made that we've made that mistake, and we still are. We have not, say, gotten ourselves off of that addiction to Chinese money. So that is a problem, and it's going to take somebody in Washington to wake up and to force U.S. business, U.S. financial uh, entities, to remember what country's name is on their passports and that they are patriots. And we are going to have to, as I say, start stop. Uh, this addiction uh, to Chinese money. You know, I'm old enough, of course, to remember how things were uh, before, say, 1990, when everyone rushed into China, uh, that it was a pretty good world. It was a pretty good life. And we didn't, you don't have to have China uh, and Chinese business to have this sort of success, to have a decent life. It'd be nice if people remembered that. Uh, so that's the, 
one of the fundamental problems in the region when you're trying to draw people to your side is, uh, well, they kind of like this Chinese money at the same time. They don't want to get China angry. So therefore, there's a limit on how, how much they will actually do with you. Uh, but you can only, say, play both sides of the fence uh, for so long. And I don't know how much longer that's going to be. I would suggest uh, not nearly as long as, as people might think. Fascinating. So it, you're, are you suggesting that while in the, in the Pacific and the Americas shares almost a very similar problem with the fact that they're uh, basically taking money from uh, the Chinese Communist Party and in order to retain American influence or you know, to grow American influence in the Asia Pacific region, first of all, uh, let's say Wall Street has to be decoupled from some of the money that they're, they're, they're getting from, from China. Well, that's true. There is no other way to put it. Uh, decoupling has this sort of this dirty meaning these days because it's misused uh, and it's uh, presented as a sort of a straw man. People saying, well, you can never completely isolate yourself from China. Well, nobody's talking about that. Uh, but what we have now is a thoroughgoing addiction. And without the foreign exchange, the foreign currency that China receives from uh, US, the U.S. financial community, from the business community, uh, that China, the Chinese Communist Party could not succeed. Uh, it would find itself unable to pay for all these things uh, that it needs to pay for in foreign currency, a convertible currency, because the Chinese uh, yuan is not convertible. Uh, and that is a huge vulnerability. And it'll, But because the Chinese communists get several hundred billion dollars at least in dollars principally every year, it allows them to paper over uh, the inefficiencies, the corruption, the problems in their system. So it seems as if China is very successful, but take away that, say, foreign exchange, try paying for things in Chinese currency, and you will find that China has to make some very uh, difficult choices for the Communist Party. It's either do you build up this, this military with this foreign currency you're getting, or do you uh, make it so you know, your citizens have a better life? And we hear so much about China having raised whatever it is, oh, 600 million people from poverty. Well, uh, yes, but what you don't hear is that there's a still about 600 million Chinese who live on $5 a day. The Chinese have just redefined the definition of poverty. Uh, and that's where the focus ought to be. But we are effectively funding the growth of the Chinese military. We have uh, allowed the, the growth of the Chinese economy uh, that poses a real threat to the United States and to the, the free world. Uh, but, and that is, say, it's one of the contradictions on the U.S. side when we talk about the, the threat from China and doing something about it. And often what is talked about is building a bigger navy, building better weapons or different weapons. Uh, it's the military part that gets too much of the focus, while at the same time, we're funding the Chinese. And how can one possibly prevail if that's what you're doing? Uh, and that is, uh, say, it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Nobody has done much about it. The Trump administration understood it, tried to do some things, uh, but they faced fierce opposition, uh, even from within the administration, but principally driven by the Wall Street crowd, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, etc. So, you know, how do you how do you win if that's the the situation? I say that doesn't get anywhere near the attention it deserves. Um, when considering the, the, the challenge we face from China. As I said, too often people will com compare the militaries and see who has the advantage. 
Well, I would suggest that if you, even if uh, we have some advantage, that if uh, we are still economically dependent, or we think we are, we've made ourselves dependent on China, uh, it's very hard to succeed. And also China is playing this card very well throughout Asia. There is not a single country in Asia or in the Pacific Islands in particular, where the Chinese do not have substantial influence, which is the result of their commercial uh, inroads that they've been able to make. And to their credit, they have, you know, Chinese people have gone out to the far ends of the region and they've done business. Uh, U.S. businesses have not been quite so energetic uh, on that front. So while Americans too much focusing on the military threat uh, that you're finding, the Chinese are very carefully and cleverly and effectively play, paying an playing an economic card uh, that is undercutting the traditional support for the United States. And in too many of these places, people are thinking, well, you know, it's China's the ones that do business with us. China's where we get our money from. Maybe the Americans, well, maybe their time has passed. Uh, the game is not over yet, of course, but America needs to get in, in and play it better than it has uh, to date. Uh, but right now, I kind of want to get your insight on uh, the issue of Japan, because uh, you've actually been uh, working quite extensively with the United States and Japanese military in developing their, their military capabilities. Um, so Japan is one of the anchor points that United States have in the Western Pacific. America can project its military power through in the Western Pacific through Japan. And with this kind of de facto new alliance between uh, Russia and China in place. How effective do you think the United States-Japan military alliance can be in deterring aggressors? And do you see any room for improvement in this relationship? U.S.-Japan relationship probably is the key to stability in the Asia-Pacific region. It is probably the key to America being able to maintain its presence uh, in the region and to really ward off Chinese aggression. Uh, that, that's how important it is. And it's finally, the relationship has finally come into its own. Uh, for too long, it was sort of taken for granted. There was a th belief that, well, we're not really threatened by anybody all that much. And for too often, too long, people could sort of ignore the, the oncoming problems, which were actually obvious at least 15 years ago. Uh, but if you join together U.S. and military forces, you join together their economic might, uh, the diplomatic strength, uh, and also keep in mind that Japan is a, it's a democracy. It's a consensual government with all the human rights and individual liberties that we value. That is, that is what Japan is. That is what it has been for 75 years now. Uh, and it is a really a much higher manifestation of human decency uh, than that big country off to, the, off to the west of it. But that's how important the U.S.-Japan alliance is. Um, that by ourselves, the Americans would be hard-pressed to hold their own in the region. But with Japan, suddenly everything gets a lot better. Our odds improve. And if the Americans and the Japanese are solidly linked, you're going to find other countries want in on that as well. Um, Australia is, of course, a good ally. But Singapore as well is watching closely to see what, uh, what happens. And they've been supportive. But to say they're watching closely... And you find many smaller countries as well are looking for this solid U.S.-Japan relationship. And ideally, one would like to see a Korean, uh, South Korean role in this as well. South Korea is an admirable democracy 
Uh, and it'd be nice if we could, if they, if we could, if everyone could get sort of put the historical issues to the side a bit. Uh, never completely do that, but uh, put them aside and realize that the free nations have to band together. But everything does depend on that U.S.-Japan alliance. Um, where where does it need to improved? Um, I think from a diplomatic standpoint and just a, the basic connection, I think it's pretty good. But militarily, and that's the one that a lot of people are interested in, the Japanese military, it looks good on paper. Uh, it's pretty big and it's the, you know, it's a very professional force, but it doesn't have the capability really of uh, conducting real military operations. Uh, and it needs to do some things to fix itself. Uh, it particularly needs to address the problem of missing recruitment targets by 25% each year. And that's mostly because it's not because Japan's population is shrinking, but rather the terms of service, salaries, benefits, housing, etc., are so bad uh, in the Japanese military that people don't want to join. Also, for decades, Japanese officials and politicians have really belittled the Japanese defense forces, really tried to humiliate them, uh, but instead give them some support actually psychological support and tangible concrete support in terms of money and respect and allow them to develop into a fully professional force that is solidly linked with the United States. Do that and American and the free world and Japan's prospects in the region improve immensely. But there are some real things that need done. I would point to one sort of obvious issue uh, is that you would think that after what, 60 years or so of the U.S.-Japan Defense Alliance, that there would be a joint headquarters in Japan where Americans and Japanese servicemen sit together and they conduct the defense of Japan, the training, the exercises, the deployments. Um, there is no such place. There is no joint headquarters. So that tells you uh, just how much needs to be done. If something that basic has not been put into place, after 60 years, uh, that the there's a lot that needs to be done and fast. Uh, really, things are not have not been allowed to develop anywhere near where they need to be to take on the really the threat from China in particular. But there's a Russian angle, but it's mostly Chinese uh, that has been obvious for at least the last 15 years. Uh, the Americans have never been too assertive about what they need uh, from the Japanese, and the Japanese have been happy to let the Americans sort of take care of things. Uh, Japan does have a defense force, but if there are any gaps or things that needed addressed, well, the Americans would take care of them. It was sort of a pathologic dependence. And only now are we coming out of, uh, out of that. Yeah, but it's, it's late, but it's once again, it's not too late, but it is late. It, we do need to hurry. Uh, so that would be my sense of it. You've got to have that solid U.S.-Japan alliance. Uh, Japan needs to do more to build up its own defense. Uh, but in Jap Japan's economic and diplomatic contributions uh, to really the cause of the free world in, in the region, those often don't get the attention they deserve. But Japan is really well liked and respected in the region. Uh, the Chinese and some of the Koreans, of course, aren't too crazy about them. Uh, but the, everywhere else, go down the, the list, you know, India, Malaysia, Singapore, Australia, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Japanese are very well liked, Philippines as well. So the Japanese do play a role quietly that they don't get always don't get the they don't always get the credit uh, they deserve for that. So on that note, uh, last October, uh, China and Russia did a joint naval exercise that 
went around this uh, the, almost a full circle uh, in Japan's main island of Honshu. If we do some kind of a scenario-based analysis, um, do you see Russia, you know, potentially in the aggression to Japan, taking resources away as to tie up Japan, Japan's resources to support Taiwan in combat, uh, or in combat, or in you know conflict with China? And and do you think, um, what do you think of the possibility of that scenario? And what do you think the United States' response should be? Well, it's certainly possible. You know, in the event, say, China makes a move on Taiwan, one would expect, uh, as things are today, that the Russians would do would make a move of some sort, just enough to distract and to divert Japanese and U.S. resources from Taiwan. So instead of being able to focus on Taiwan, you have to pay attention to and deal with even some Russian movements or deployments. The Russians don't even have to shoot. They just have to move around a bit in a way that forces you to pay more attention. Uh, similarly, in the event of a Taiwan scenario, you could expect North Korea to do something, uh, which would also force the Japanese and the Americans, not to mention the South Koreans, uh, to divert attention away from what is going on uh, in Taiwan. Uh, so what you really need to do is to uh, make sure that U.S. forces in, in the region are adequately resourced. In other words, there's enough of them with enough equipment uh, to be able to take on all comers. And that would that does require uh, some additions. Uh, but also getting the Japanese capabilities in order, improving Japanese war fighting capabilities uh, would be immensely important. And that also requires making the Japan self-defense forces bigger, particularly the Navy and the Air Force. Uh, but also improving their capabilities is the big thing so that they are ready and able to, uh, say, take on the Russians. Uh, and handle events on the Korean Peninsula, and also handle things that are going on in Taiwan at the same time. That's obviously a tall order. Uh, but if you, you do have to have partners to address all of these threats, uh, Russia, North Korea, China, uh, that America has too often not required enough from its partners in the region. And I say Japan in particular is one of them. Uh, but there's say, other countries that can play a, a major role, uh, if, if not providing resources, at least providing operating bases, places from which the Americans can operate. And there's other countries, say, in the region, the Philippines come immediately to mind, where the Americans haven't done everything that they should in order to have, so to have the ability to operate in the event of a contingency, or even better, before a contingency happens. If you can operate and you're ready to go before something happens, the other side just might say, well, it's really not worth it. And this is not entirely a military problem. It's really American diplomacy and successive American administrations have not really done what they've needed to do to get things lined up in the Asia Pacific region so that the Americans and their friends can take on the threats that are coming. The Trump administration was by far the best uh, of the administrations that I'm familiar with going back to the, uh, the George H.W. Bush era. Uh, but it only had really about three years to get things done, and that's not a very long time, but it did do a lot of good. Colonel, I think the point you mentioned um, about developing Japanese militaries, um, one key aspect of this 
would you say would be the amphibious operations? I just want to you know go, go off the tangent a little bit because I, I think you were um, basically setting up that program for the Japanese military, right? When you were when you were uh, working working there. No, that's right. Yeah, they um, I helped them uh, create something kind of like a Marine Corps. It's an amphibious force. That was about ten years ago. And they brought it to fruition, uh, and it's turned turned out to be a pretty good, capable little force. Uh, and it, it's uh, potentially very useful uh, for operations in a say down in southern Japan, where you have a lot of islands, you have a lot of ocean. That's what amphibious forces are for: is to be able to operate in those areas. Uh, and it is, I say, a useful piece of the puzzle. If you think of a carpenter who has a bunch of tools in his toolkit, that's what a national defense is. Uh, that you need to do a number of different things, and you never quite know which one is going to be called upon. Uh, but if you don't have the ability to operate, say, from ship to shore, or from shore to ship, and to move around rapidly uh, across the oceans and cause an enemy all kinds of trouble, if you can't do that, you can see it's like a carpenter who has a doesn't have a screwdriver. He's got a hammer and he's got saws, but he doesn't have this one thing he must have. So that's what the Japanese needed, and that's what we helped them get. Uh, but also, we had another reason for creating the the Japanese amphibious force, and or better said, supporting those Japanese that knew they needed an amphibious force, uh, but needed some cover and some help uh, to bring it to fruition. And that is that, in order to have an amphibious force, you have to have the navy, the ground forces, and an air force all cooperate together. So you have to have these three services, these three capabilities, able to operate in just complete coordination, operate smoothly. And that was the Japanese military was not able to do that. The Japanese Army, the Japanese Navy and Air Force uh, could not conduct what are called joint operations. And if they couldn't do that, it was really was it meant that the Japanese military was not nearly as effective as it needed to be. So we thought that by helping Japan get an amphibious force, it is going to force them to have the Navy uh, and the Army and the Air Force or, uh, or the, the Army's Air Force uh, cooperate for the first time in history. And that was part of the objective. And we have had that did have, have some success. So there was a not, not quite an ulterior motive, but a secondary reason. And we thought it was a way to address a fundamental problem in Japan's defense capabilities that had not been addressed to that point. Um, so they have made a lot of improvement in that area. Um, this ability to conduct so-called joint operations. There's a long way to go, um, particularly when it comes to conducting joint operations with the Americans. Uh, but they are a lot better off than they were 10 years ago, and they are making pretty quick progress. I, um, by nature, I'm not a, a cheerleader or, uh, and do recognize there's a lot of work to be done. But I am impressed with what has been done. Uh, in the last few years. And I would also, and I have to say this in case anyone from the Navy is listening, that the US Navy and the Japanese Navy have an excellent relationship, particularly operationally, which means they can operate together. And they are the model really of what all the US and Japanese forces should be aiming for. So I do want to give that credit uh, where it's due is the, the two navies uh, have always had a, an excellent relationship. Uh, the Japanese Navy is of course much too small uh, for what it needs to do, it should probably be doubled in size, uh, both personnel and number of ships uh, to meet Japan's uh, requirements. They can't rely on the Americans uh, to take care of things anymore.
the that the Japanese Navy and the U.S. Navy have an excellent relationship. They are able to operate together in every respect very well. And they're the model for what the entire U.S. military, the entire Japanese military should be able to do. So if you want to see what needs done, look at the two navies. Um, but what I was also stressing is that the Japanese Navy is much too small. It probably needs to be doubled in size, both number of sailors, but also number of ships. Uh, it's got too many missions, too many things it has to take care of these days. And the 50, 60 ships that it has is not anywhere near enough. And that needs to be addressed. Uh, the Japanese cannot think that the Americans are going to take care of things uh, for them, but they do need to uh, devote some resources and effort and spend some political capital uh, to get this done. But I think if they if they persuade the Japanese public, uh, who often have a very good sense of Japan's defense requirements, uh, when it's explained to them, I think that there'd be a lot of public support for doing this. And you talked about this chemistry between uh, United States and Japan. Well, the United States also has this bilateral agreement with Korea. So it, it's almost like, but there isn't, there isn't there seem to be much chemistry uh, in between Japan and Korea, as you touched on briefly due to historical reasons. Um, but wouldn't the trilateral agreement be immensely helpful in the face of rising aggression and rising ambition that's obvious from the Chinese Communist Party? Oh, it would be immensely important. Uh, it's essential, in fact. The, uh, the, this threat that is coming from China is one that I really can't overstate the, the nature of it uh, and just what a, a danger it is. And for the Americans, the Japanese, and the Koreans to cooperate uh, on defense in particular, but there's an economic angle to it as well, uh, but particularly on the defense side, that would really be important uh, to do. And in the past, there have been times when the, the, the Koreans and the Japanese have gotten, actually gotten along pretty well, both at the political level, but also the military uh, side of it as well. They have actually have um, been able to sort of do some things together. Uh, they've had these counterpart relationships between parts of the Japan Self-Defense Force and the Korean military. And there is a, there's a, a basis from which to improve the relationship. The Americans have been trying hard. Every administration has. Uh, and I think though that there may be some upper, better opportunities these days with the recent election of a conservative president in Japan and in Korea, who has said that he's gonna to try to sort of improve things with the Japanese. Uh, you know, one really make no mistake that this uh, the feeling towards the Japanese in South Korea isn't something that people can just get over, just forget about. Uh, but it's sometimes a country and a people do have to uh, sort of bite their tongue a bit and for a sort of a bigger purpose, which in this case is to really defend democracy, individual liberty and freedom in, in Northeast Asia and all of Asia. And the Koreans really have a sort of a big role to play in that if they if they choose to. Uh, so it's uh, this has been a challenge for the goodness, the 30, 35 years I've been following things uh, out here. But uh, there's uh, room for improvement. And I like to be uh, sort of cautiously pessimistic or I'm joking, but I, I think they can make they can improve things, partly because they could hardly have been worse than they've been for the last few years. But. Uh, I think that uh, things can be improved. And the Americans, of course, have a role to play here. 
both in encouraging, but they may need to speak pretty directly to some of the parties uh, to make it clear that if you expect Americans to die for you, uh, that you're going to have to um, sort of overlook some of these resentments uh, that you've got. And that is something that I don't know the Americans have ever done it well enough, but they, they do need to speak clearly on that front. And it is about that simple. America is expected to die on behalf of democ democracies in Northeast Asia. So we would expect as a sort of a commensurate response and contribution, we would expect them to cooperate uh, where it meets everybody's needs. Well, with that, with that said, thank you very much, Colonel, for your time today. Okay, well, thank you very much. I enjoyed the opportunity. Yeah, just a note to our audience, we are doing a second part of this tomorrow with the Taiwan, where Colonel and Yushamana will be talking about the situation in Taiwan, so make sure to tune in.